Let's pray. Well, here we are again, Lord. Um, we're here because of you. Um, no one is like you. We exalt you. Um, we need you. Would you have your way in us, Lord, as we spend some time um, yielding to the truth of your word? Lord, help me um, in my inadequacy uh, be adequate, Lord. Help us to all be teachable uh, before you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for one another. Uh, we thank you for life. Uh, we thank you for victory that we have through your blood, Jesus. And so uh, we just commit ourselves into your faithful hands. In the name of Christ, amen. Please be seated. Well, thank you for being here on September 24th, 2023. You know, our calendars, <clears throat> um, we're in 2023 because of uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> we mark the day of his birth year. Um, it's kind of crazy, isn't it, when you think about it? As secular as everything in the universe is. Um, he reigns. He reigns from Christmas Eve to his return. And so the passage this morning that we're going to look at is his return, his second advent. It's Merry Christmas 2.0. Everything that you do, it would be really wise to do in light of those two huge dates. Christmas Eve and his return. Those are two very significant events in human history. And we don't spend a whole lot of time very specifically celebrating his second advent, do we? We, we, we do a lot on, on the Christmas theme. Um, one of the ideas behind communion is to think about his second return that we're going to have a feast with him when he returns. And so my task today is to look at Revelation chapter 20, the first 10 verses, and try to communicate clearly with you the great controversy of these 10 verses without getting lost in the controversy, but rather to really be caught up in the truth that is embedded in these 10 verses. I'm not sure I have read very much on this particular passage, heard very many messages on this very passage that really highlight the main deal. So the main deal, I just want to say it up front, and we're going to try to stay in the bounds here. The two most important dates in human history are Christmas Eve and the return of Jesus Christ. At the inauguration of Jesus Christ, when he came to the planet, all the angels got all riled up, sang a big old loud song, sky lit up. 
we learn in Revelation chapter 12 that at that same time that Satan, the dragon, falls from heaven in Revelation chapter 12. Christmas Eve is a big deal. Um, we don't hear anything else in the book of Revelation from Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, the, only, the last time the word dragon, Satan, is used, until it comes back up in chapter 20. Um, right before the second advent. So we get a little bit of Christmas Eve and we get a little bit of the second advent in the book of Revelation. Significant. Do not get lost in all that I'm going to talk about, the controversy on the thousand years that are in this text. All right, now I'm going to do my best to represent the three positions that really smart people that love Jesus Christ hold three different views on this. I am going to appeal to you during this message to do better than we have done in controversies over secondary issues in the Bible. I felt sickened this last week listening to different pastors teach on three different positions. I felt dirty at the end of their messages, and I'm praying that you don't feel dirty, I don't feel dirty at the end of this because we have a corner on some market that frankly does not matter in the grand scheme of things. If you want to be a believer in Jesus Christ under the, the board and under the pastoral staff and the leaders in this church family, we are pleading with you to be people that do not make a big deal out of secondary issues. It is ruining the testimony in our nation. It's not allowing us to be seen for who we truly are. We get all loud about the wrong things. All right? You got me? And so let me give you an example. You might have a friend that goes to a different church. I know you might find it hard to believe, but they might maybe possibly go to heaven. <laughs> oh, but you're not sure. They're sure because of the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins, and that the only means of salvation is through him. But they have a different view of communion. They see baptism differently. They choose to practice the role of women leadership differently than you want. <clears throat> Secondary issues taking primary place, ruin the testimony of Jesus Christ through his church. And we have to stop it. And so in this text, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses in Revelation 20 now, and we're going to talk a little bit about the differences. I just didn't want you to miss the point. I've already made the point. Let's pray, and you can go home. <laughs> and many of us in the room saying, this was the best service I've ever been at, including the one standing up here. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel. The 24th time in the book that we've read this phrase. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss. Not the first time that we have seen holding the key. We learn that Jesus Christ holds the keys of death and Hades in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. We learn that he gives those keys to certain angels at certain points to, to bring home certain principles that we need to learn from the book of Revelation. But do not forget who holds the keys. It's not an angel. The angel only has a key because Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, has given him the keys. It's not the first time we've seen the word abyss. And a great chain was in his hand. So a key in one hand, a chain in the other hand. He seized the dragon. First time we've seen the word dragon since chapter 13, verse 4. We've seen beasts, two beasts, the beast of the, of the sea, the beast of the earth. We've seen the false prophet, and we've seen the prostitute, the city of Babylon. All henchmen for the dragon. Because something happened to the dragon in chapter 12. Something happened to the dragon on Christmas Eve. Revelation chapter 12 talks about Christmas Eve. At the end of the 12th chapter of Revelation, we see the dragon standing on the seashore. He knows, and it says in the text, he knows his time is short. Something happens. We don't have it laid out. We're, we're working with poetry so, so much. We're working with symbolism so much. Would you agree in the book of Revelation? It's not all just that really nice, clear, you know, principle upon principle. <laughs> Thus, no one really likes to teach on it. <laughs> Except there's so much in it that endears me all the more to Jesus Christ. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Here we go. First time in all of the passages and all of the scripture, we have this thing, Satan is bound for a thousand years. Never anywhere else. It's going to say it six times in this chapter. Okay? Only time. No, no reference to it. You have to go back and think, okay, what happens to this thousand years? Is it, you know, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 60? You know, is that what's going on? Is it, you know, is it Israel? Is it, you know, what's being done in these thousand years? And you're like, oh, okay, maybe it's that. Verse 3, he threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Satan already knows this. We've already read about this in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, short time. As a matter of fact, in 1712, it says that the beast will only have one hour and then his time will be done. We just read about the beast in chapter 19. The Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes on the white horse. We see that there, there's a beast. We see that there's a false prophet. Uh, and we see that they are thrown in chapter 19, they're thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. However, in our chapter, we're also going to see there's another battle. And as you look at the battle, you're like, it's just the same battle, except now the focus is on the dragon, not on the beast. Interesting, right? So be careful to feel like you have to nail down in some chronological order what's going on so that we don't miss the point of the text. Making sense to you? It's crazy, I know. It's, I'd rather 
be having brunch someplace. <laughs> he threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it, thousand years, okay? After that, he'll be released for a short time. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. We learn in chapter 1, verse 5 of our book, Revelation, that Jesus Christ has seated the saints with him in the heavenly realm as priests and kings forever. So which is it? What's the thousand years? I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I thought a person that died in Christ, according to Jesus, though he die, he still lives. What's John talking about here? Is it a special thousand years that has no contact to anything else in, in history? Is it, it is a special dispensation of these saints reigning, the beheaded specifically? Be careful not to read too much in to the text, but make sure we get the point. We're going to talk about the three views in a minute. I haven't forgotten. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Who are these people, the rest of the dead? Well, we learn that these are people that had died in human history without a belief in Jesus Christ. That's these dead. We're going to find that out next week. When, Chad, when uh, Pastor Chad has a great delight to talk to you about the judgment of the great white throne. I said, I don't want to do both millennium and the great white throne in one week. I love myself way too much for that, to, that much agony. So he's going to do that. And then Carl gets to do what I wanted to do, which is chapter 21. And then Chad will come back. Then on the 15th of November, we'll finish our series in Revelation 22. So that's where we're going to go. This is the first resurrection. It says, end of verse 5, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. I thought they were already reigning. I thought Jesus was already reigning. I thought the saints were already reigning, seated with him. What gives here? Verse 7, when the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, just a reference to the battle in Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38. It's a big old battle that represents what's going to go on at the end of the time. You can go back and read the details if you want to, but that's that reference to Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand in the sea. A lot, a lot, a lot of people. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. 
at some point in time, not a big old bloody battle, not a long, drawn-out deal. Lord said, it's done. No more opportunities for a human being to turn to me. There is a day like that coming. It's the return of Jesus. It's the second advent of Jesus. It's a battle. And then Carl gets to talk about the really fun stuff. Two weeks. But today we're, we're here. Fire came down. And it was done. So here's where my mind goes. The dragon is back on the planet for just a short period of time. He goes and rallies the entire nation, deceives the entire nation, non-believers. They come, they gather together, they come up on some crest at some point, and they surround the saints in the holy city. Perhaps for the first time in these human beings that are on the scene, the first time in their whole life, they get to see the glory of Jesus Christ. For the very first time, they're like, what am I doing? What have I done? This is the Son of God. It's not unlike the Roman, the Roman centurion at the cross with Jesus. He nails him to the cross. He raises him. He's there and he's giving instructions of how to be abusive to Jesus. And then Jesus dies and the Roman says, Oh my God, this was the Son of God. It is not God's desire for any human being to perish. God is after every human soul. So I don't want us to read this and just say, oh, that's awesome. I want us to think deeply about the opportunity we have to reflect the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ to a non-believing world. And I, want you to, and I want you to know you need to become and learn how to be winsome with that. You need to learn in the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 how to become all things to all people that you might win them. One size doesn't fit all. You can't go to an evangelism class and all of a sudden just be a rock star in the area of evangelism. You have got to think on your feet when you're talking to people. But that doesn't mean that we don't, that we go and we talk to people about the love of Jesus Christ and the power of God in Christ. He's the only hope. I think it's very interesting in this text. First of all, we don't see Jesus on his white horse in chapter 20. It's assumed, it's implied. He's there with the saints in the holy city. It's not going to be a battle. <laughs> he simply says a word just like he did at the, before there was anything created. He spoke it into being. Jesus has never stopped reigning. One moment. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Now, the, the last part of this chapter then talks about the human beings who will stand before judgment, before God, before his great white throne of judgment. Okay, that's where it's going to talk about. Chad will get to that next week. We're going to work on these thousand years. How do we think about these thousand years? There's three major ways in which to interpret these 10 verses in Scripture. One of them is called the pre-mill view. The pre-mill view believes that Jesus Christ will come at some point in time and establish an earthly rule for a literal thousand-year period of time. At the end of which, then, is this battle. At the end of the battle is the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? They believe that um, the... The establishment, really, of Jesus Christ and his reign will happen during this th that thousand years on the planet. That's, that's one of the positions. It is the, the most recent position. Um, this is about 200 years old, this position. It has become very popular in our particular generation um, back in the 90s when the Left Behind series came out and then the Left Behind movies came out, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins... I think it's very interesting that a guy by the name of Ralph Winter, who was a missiologist, actually a professor, a visiting professor at the seminary I went to in 1981 and 82, he came and he talked to us. He is the one that produced the movie for the Left Behind series. Ralph Winter is the one now that has come out and said, when he's asked, where do you stand on the millennial issue? He says, I have a brand new view, and it's called Pan It'll all pan out. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Here's a guy that produced the movie on pre, the, the premiere of Pre-Mill. Came out and said, I think everyone, if they're honest, whatever stance you might have on this particular issue of these thousand years, is it literal? Is it symbolic? Or is it something in between? I want to tell you it does not matter in the grand scheme of things. So please, if you have as a really high value to your position on, is it post, is it pre, is it ah, would you please consider respectfully having, keeping your position, but please don't break fellowship on it. Let me tell you a little history of our denomination up until 2016, the Evangelical Free Church of America, most of you, many of you may not know, we're part of a denomination, that's the name of it, had a pre-mill statement in our Articles of Faith. In 2008, we began to study and think about, should we keep that in there? It is such a divisive thing. And for the free church, just if you don't know, the kind of church that you're part of, we do not like to have fights over things that do not matter. We, let me say it a different way. We want to be friends with other believers in Jesus Christ. And we, well, the only things that we're going to argue about are things like sound doctrine issues. Like the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation for us. Like the Trinity. We need to stand firm on that together. And the, like things like the authority of Scripture. Uh, things like, what, what are they? Oh, the Trinity. Right? Did I say that already? Three things. I think, you know, everything else kind of needs to be like, whew. 
And so your view on end times needs to be held loose. What I want you to do is I want you to learn how to value taking really good care of one another and listening, re- listening really well to one another and valuing one another way more than having a big old stance on some millennial issue that will not matter in the big scheme of things, okay? And this is not the only issue, is it? But it's an issue. I, I wish it wasn't. I, I wish we didn't have to talk about it. But the body of Christ is so divided. Believers and churches are so divided. And I know that when I say it doesn't matter, some of you who hold really strong convictions and you're really strong on your particular position, you feel like throwing a dart at me right now. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you I will not take that dart out and throw it back at you. I guarantee you that. What I will do is I'll listen to you and I'll love you and I'll try to understand you and I'll try to learn from you. And I'm asking for that same respect from other people. This is the way of Christ, y'all. I'm not asking anybody to sell your theological farm. But I am saying we need to take better care of one another than we have been. And so you might be an all-mill person. That means that you do not believe that there's a literal at all. You believe that it's completely symbolism in chapter 20 on the thousand-year reign. Okay? Post-mill person believes that Jesus Christ comes at the end of of 1,000 years. They're not sure when the 1,000 years begins, but they know when it will begin because at the end of it, they will be able to count back 1,000 years. That's post-mill. A post-mill person has a great high value in the power of the gospel to change culture. That's a real attractive thing to me. I think they're a little bit too optimistic sometimes when it comes to the realities. I think that a pre-mill position is too pessimistic about the power of the gospel and the power of the gospel to work through human beings and through uh, local assemblies. I think, I think it's too pessimistic about uh, that. The awe mill position to me uh, really leans a little bit too much on symbolism throughout the scriptures, throughout especially the book of Revelation. So, so I, I'm kind of with Ralph Winter. Man, this thing's going to pan out really good. And so there's some things that the, the three positions do agree on. One of those things is that all three positions agree that the best is yet to come. Okay? All three of them agree that the future is not up for grabs. It's in the hands of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I think there's some things that we ought to agree agree on. (laughs) This is when it gets weird. Uh, I think we ought to agree on these. All three positions ought to agree on these things. The 1,000 years in the, this chapter is not a statistic. It's a symbol. It's representing something. And we're in really good territory when we think about numbers in our particular book that we're studying. When you study the book of Revelation, you find out right away that when it says seven horns and ten heads it's probably not talking about literal. As a matter of fact, in, in, in Revelation chapter 7, Jesus is said to have come up and he has ten crowns and he has seven horns. And, and I'm, I'm like, okay, 
But, but, but they mean, those, those symbols mean something. And so then to all of a sudden get all literal on a, on a number in Revelation is a little bit iffy to me, okay? And so I'm tipping my hand, aren't I? Now, don't hear me say that it, it could be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ coming. And, and I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I just don't think that we ought to split fellowship over it. Anybody with me on this? Some of you, maybe not so much. That's okay. At least from my side of it, I still see you as a full card-carrying believer in Jesus Christ who's going to be with me for eternity, okay? And you might not see me that way, but that's not, I'm thankful it's not in your hands. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I don't have you in my hands and vice versa. We all have, are in the hands of the Pope. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Having a little fun with you there. Okay. Woo, lighten it up a little bit in the room. We're in the hands of Jesus Christ. Whether I believe in this or that thing about this thousand years in Revelation 20. Um, I think we ought to agree that Jesus does not become king during the millennium. The pre-trib has a special dispensation on the authority, the kingship of Jesus Christ during this little literal thousand-year period of time. And I'm like, okay, that could happen. I, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I don't see it anywhere else in the Scripture up to here. So you have to bank completely on Revelation 20 on that particular stance. That there's a special dispensation given to the king of kings that is special on the planet at this point. I just don't see it in the rest of scripture. I think we ought to agree that the church is not a helpless victim on the story stage of history. I think the church of Jesus Christ has accomplished incredible things in the last 2,000 years. Are we perfect? Absolutely so. Just ask us, right? Do we have problems? Absolutely. But has God done something through the church? Like he, it's not, it's not our promise. God says, I am going to build my church. Jesus says, and, and that gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against it. Something's going to happen. I believe that, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I believe that the God, I think we also ought to agree that the gospel changes things. Whether we're in a a thousand years special period of time or not, I still think from the moment of Christmas Eve and, and Easter Sunday, I believe that the gospel has great power. Doesn't just all of a sudden get powerful in a thousand year period. I just don't see that in scripture. Okay, I'm going to come at it again. But if you believe in, in this, Pre-mill, 1,000, I love you like crazy. I don't love you any more, any less for that position, okay? And I do think this is how we ought to be treating one another on such things. Six observations then that I have, and we'll land this aircraft somehow. Okay. I think the reign of Christ during this thousand years happens before the final battle. Do you agree? In both chapter 19 and 20. 
we have Jesus Christ is reigning before this final battle. Do you agree? So at some point in time, Jesus Christ does return is my point. We all agree on that. There is a point in time he comes, Satan is released to do something really horrible on the planet for, for just a little bit. And Jesus takes him out and then has a judgment and then ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And did I mention Carl gets to talk about that? I'm not bitter at all about that. Seems like old people should sometimes get their way. Have I, is there any amens on that? Amen. Steve, did you hear me? <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll talk later. Okay. What did you say, Joe? <laughs> Whatever the, this thousand-year reign of Jesus entails, it began on Christmas Eve. It, it, aren't you being a little bit redundant, Joe, on purpose? Jesus reigned from that moment he came to the planet. He says to Pilate in his defense, that, so this is on the day that he was crucified, he says in John 18, so this is our author, John 18, verse 37 says, You say correctly, Pilate, that I am a king. For this reason I was born. And for this I have come into the world. I believe that Jesus was born king. I believe that he reigned at that moment. I believe because of his reign, Satan was booted out of heaven and put in a different place than he had ever been before to have any impact on the planet. Does demonic, does the spiritual realm, is there spiritual warfare? Yeah, absolutely. But if we try to think about how that happens from the book of Revelation, we have to think something changed in Re Revelation chapter 12. And then finally in 13, 4, we see, we see the dragon, his name is not mentioned again until chapter 20. Who is bringing all the pain on the planet? It's the two beasts. It's the false prophet. It's the prostitute. It's the world order. It's a seductive world order. That Satan, like a mob boss from his chains is still pulling strings on the evil side of things. I think John wants us to think that Satan was bound in the events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. After Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, this is the front end of his ministry, he finally comes public, has the wedding I'm sorry, before the wedding, he's baptized, goes to the wilderness, right? And he comes out of the wilderness, and what did he say? Immediately, for the first time in Scripture, we see, and he came out proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's when he started proclaiming it. That's when it, when it first hurt the, hurt, um, hit the ears of human beings. Jesus, after getting victory in the wilderness over Satan, comes out and says, I got some great news to tell y'all. Satan is not having his way anymore on my watch. I have a plan to help people, to liberate people from his chains. Something happened. 
at Christmas and at Easter. And when Jesus started, even when Jesus started his public ministry, something happened. The first parable that, that Mark ever tells is a parable in, chapter, in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. It says, but no one can enter a strong man's house. Let me just say right here, who's the strong man's house that, 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 that uh, is being entered? It's Satan is the strong man in this parable. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Same word that we have in chapter 20 as we have in Mark 3 in this parable. Interesting. Jesus came to the planet and he came to plunder you and me from the hands, from the grip of Satan and evil. And you have Jesus Christ to thank for that today. He has victory over Satan. And it might be a thousand years, there's a special thing that's going on. All right, did I already mention that? <laughs> All right, so don't hear me say that. That couldn't happen. You can already feel it come on off me. I don't think that's probably what's going to happen. If it does, great. Some wonderful things could happen if there's a special dispensation like that. But I don't want you to think that you do not have power over Satan before that happens, is the point of the text. You and I have every reason to boast in Jesus Christ, in all of his power, in all of his glory, in all of his grace and mercy that you need, that needs to have come in you and flow through you to other people. You have everything you need because Satan has been put in the grip of Jesus Christ and so you no longer have to stay under the grip of Satan. I think John wants us to think that way in this passage. I think Jesus meant it at the end of his life when he returned and one of his visits back to the apostles after his resurrection, before his, his ascension. One of those is in Matthew 28. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. I don't think he's saying that just, you know, as, a, as an exercise of something he was supposed to say, and, and good luck with that, because you know what, uh, Satan is really, you know, I still haven't figured him out. No, he's given you a commission that he, he plans for us to be successful in, because he reigns, and because Satan has been bound by Jesus Christ. I don't know all the details of that, but I know that at least in some ways, Jesus Christ has bound Satan before this millennium period, if it's a literal thousand years. Are you with me? Do I need to start the whole message all over? No. <laughs> you, would you like to vote? <laughs> no, Lord, don't vote. John clearly sees that Jesus is already seated on the throne in Romans 4 and 5. I won't gonna, I'm not going to take you there. We've been there. You can read that if you want to at some other time. The dead in Christ have already come to life before this millennium period. Your loved ones that have died before you in Christ are with Christ, seated with Christ, reigning with Christ right now. It's this intermediate stage. They do not have their resurrection body, but they no longer are under the pain that they were experiencing. They are with the Lord whether this is a literal thousand years period or not, I want you to know that the Bible teaches that your loved one that has gone before you in Christ is with Christ alive 
and seated, it says, with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's really important to us, isn't it? It's not like this guessing game, like, oh man, I hope Jesus comes through. He's already come through. And he's just waiting. He's waiting. Why is he waiting? Because he wants more and more people to repent, to come to know him, to love him, to understand what what forgiveness is, what, what liberation is from the hands of evil and Satan, this world. John wants us to think of ourselves as already reigning with the reigning Jesus. They came to life. And they reigned with Jesus for a thousand years. I'm going to close with this. So if um, Sammy and his peeps want to come up, that would be great. I, I think maybe, maybe, again, remember, I could be wrong. I think perhaps the best commentary on Revelation chapter 20 is through the lens of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Okay, I I think this is one of the things, if not the thing that we need to bring out of Revelation 20 and apply to ourselves. Let it let it have its way in us. All right. Ephesians chapter two, five and six. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with him. Not only are people that have died before us in Christ with God reigning, it says in this text that you reign with him right now. You are seated with him right now. It is no longer you who live, it's Christ who lives in you. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. God made us alive together with him and raised us up with him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That's something to celebrate. That's true right now, but I don't feel like it. It's because you're probably in some level under the thumb and in the grip of Satan in some areas of your life. And he would like, to, he would like you to be released of that. And you don't have to go to some long old seminar on that. You need to just simply open your heart today and you say, you know, Lord, I have a cyclical sin in my life. I have some wrong thinking conclusions in my life. I need help today. Would you get me on a journey? Would you help me to escape the grip of Satan? I understand that you have already seated with me, but I'm still so anchored to this world I want release, Jesus. I know that I have not trusted you in some areas, and I want to lay those down before you today. Because this is what's true from Jesus' perspective. If you have a shame operating system going on in your life, if you're, if you're a fear-based person, you're going to feel like you're not saved. You're going to feel like you're not seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You're going to feel like you're constantly under something else than Jesus Christ's reign. And Jesus said, that's enough. Let's not do that anymore. The Bible pleads with us to come out from underneath Satan's grip. Well, can believers come back under the grip of of Satan? Absolutely. 
I mean, just read for a little bit Romans chapter 7. The very thing that I want to do, I end up not doing. What's wrong with me, Paul says. Can anybody relate with Paul? Have you ever said, what's wrong with me? How come everybody else seems to be getting this stuff? Why, do they, why are they so free? Why, why, why do they smile so much? From their gut, you can just feel it. Why? why? And not me. You see, the Bible is not like made, interpreted by some system of man. It's not some statistic. It's a real Jesus Christ who really reigns, who says, I want you to abide by my truth because it's my truth that's going to set you free. And the truth is you need me. The truth is I reign. The truth is I came for you. I came to plunder you. I came to, to, I came to, I'm a stronger man than a stronger man. I've come into his house. I've put him under my power. And if you want to, you can come out of that stinking bad room you've lived in and you can start living with me. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter 20. And it can start right now for you. Great time is during this worship time. You, you, you know, there'd be a lot of noise in the room. So, you know, you can kind of just have a conversation with the Lord and say, Lord, I need some help here. I'll be up here afterwards. There's nothing special about me. There's other people in the room that would love just to hear you. You can be honest and about whatever you need to be honest about. And they'll just pray, love you, listen to you, value you as a human being. All right? That's what we're going to do. Let's stand in what uh, we're going to worship, the Revelation song. All right? Let's sing this from our toes all the way through. All right? Wait. Hey, listen. All right? Come on. All right, let's go.